Take your seats, movie fans. The film's about to start. Welcome to Craft of Services, the show where we look back at the bad films of cinematic history, the movies that critics rejected, but audiences embraced. I'm your host, Aaron Coker. I'm also the host of the Just Enough Trope podcast and the Enterprising Individuals podcast on this, the Just Enough Trope Network. You can find out more at justenoughtrope.com. Joining me on the show today is Matt Gamble. Matt is the general manager at Carasota's Showplace Icon Theater in St. Louis Park, Minnesota. He's also the editor-in-chief of Where the Long Tail Ends, a film criticism and industry commentary blog, and he's the host of his own podcast, High and Low Brow. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Tell me about High and Low Brow. Uh, it is a themed podcast that we started a long time ago with a, a fellow movie friend, uh, James Gillum. Uh, we basically have a theme that we select for each episode and watch two movies that fall under that theme. So if you want to do like buddy team ups, it could be something like <laughs> Seven Samurai sure. and, you know, Three Amigos or whatever it is. Um, That's about as high and low as you yeah, can Yeah. And I mean, like, I mean, it's. A lot of the times we kind of use it to try and find movies that we've never seen that oh. we think fall under the theme and then kind of react to it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's it's more a focus for us to try and find like those kind of lost in the cracks. Like both of us grew up parsing through like VHS shelves at oh, our movie store. Absolutely. Like, yeah. And spending an hour to find that perfect movie. Yeah. And so it's kind of falling in that kind of zone of what we want to do. Yeah. Like, Finding the perfect one is a, is a great yeah. <laughs> comment because you never never really do. And back in those days, I mean, I hope our listeners are probably old enough, but if they're not old enough to remember, uh, Blockbuster or even the local movie shop, yep. you know, the video updates or the Hollywood videos yeah. or, or what have you. And just sort of like they say, like, you can judge a book by its cover, you shouldn't. Just seeing like the crazy art, you know, it's whatever it draws you in about that VHS cover, you know. Yeah, the VHS cover was really almost always what you had to go on. And yeah. then the couple, the two or three screenshots they had in the back, and you really had to guess from that. Um and yeah, I mean I think there's a there's a certain generation where that's what we did. Like we instead of going to the library, we went to the the video store. Oh yeah. And sat there for two <laughs> <Sadly>. hours. <laughs> like there's a, I've I've told my wife there's there's a lot of movies I know a lot about simply because I've read the back of that cover. Oh, absolutely. I don't know how many times, even though I've never seen it. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Uh, have blockbuster card will travel. Yeah, my friend had a blockbuster card, and it was the no restriction. You know, there yep. was no, so he could get whatever. I didn't because we weren't a big movie family, so I got a lot of my movie stuff by proxy. But I used to, um, I used to read uh, the newspaper because I was a dork every mm -hmm. Sunday. But I'd get the TV guide as well, and I'd go to the back of the TV guide where they'd have. You know, in the listings, such and such a film, yep. uh, whatever it is, and then you flip to the back, and it's this is what it is. And I'd read all the synopses, you know, cover to cover. So there's a ton of movies that I'd never seen, but I was like, oh right, of course, yep. that's got Burt Lancaster or yep. what have you. Yeah, yeah. There's lots of stuff where I'll just be like, oh yeah, that has this, this, and this. Yeah. Yeah, I got, I remember that. I haven't seen it, but I, I totally know all about it. Yeah. And as a film fan, I'm sure that you're aware of the phenomenon where it's like you've seen a bunch of stuff, you feel like you're an expert at this, that, or the other, but there's just still. There's stuff that you haven't seen. Oh, yeah. And I mean, I like I am in this industry because I love film. Like I love movies. I love being a part of it. And I I remember how important going to the movies and seeing like those like, you know, the movie that kind of transformed me, of, of course, was Star Wars. But like, right. Red Dawn was the first VHS movie, which blow, <laughs> blew my mind that you could take a movie home and do that. Yeah. Like, right. These kinds of moments were really special to me, which is part of the reason why I'm in the film industry and exhibition is that I like being the person that can give that moment to other people. Sure. 
It, this is a complicated question for any film fan, but do you have any favorite films or directors, genres, actors? Um, I tend, I mean, I'm a genre film fan in general, so I tend to, I tend to gravitate towards horror sci-fi. I like documentary a lot, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but like, I mean, my favorite film all time is M, which is a Fritz Lang movie. Mine like, too. Yeah, I think it's it's brilliant. Like, uh, <laughs> I, I could. I could talk for hours about. about uh, come back, please. Yeah, we well, it's well, very it highly fits, rated. Yeah, I don't <laughs> yeah. think it fits in this this one. But um, but like, yeah, I mean, Kurosawa is a huge. I'm a huge fan of Kurosawa, of course. Um, but like, yeah, I, at the same point, like, Meet the Feebles is probably in my top 100 at some <laughs> sure. point. Like, okay. there's, there's, S- same, same. Yeah. We're simpatico so far. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, for me, it's very much like my reaction and my visceral reaction to a movie. Sure. And then from there, if I really, really love it and I think it's a great film, I might look into it more and try and find out, like, what are the themes? What are the concepts? What is, what's yeah. it trying to tell us? Okay. But I think there's plenty of movies where it doesn't have to be about a lot. You know, yeah. I think Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a movie that's pretty cut and dry on yeah. what it is. R.I.P. Toby Hooper. Yep. <laughs> but it's a brilliant, beautiful movie. Mm. Um, beautiful. I absolutely, I would argue strongly it's beautiful. Sure, sure. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I mean, to me, like, those kinds of movies that draw you in and, and get you watching and, and want you to, to find the next one that'll give you that same kind of rush. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love M, and um, I'm also a comic fan, and I had this dream for a while. Maybe I shouldn't say this because I could still do it, <laughs> but I wanted to do an adaptation of M to the world of Daredevil. Oh, that would and work. so have, have Daredevil <laughs> tracking down this uh, serial killer or whatever, yep. this child killer. Then you've got the cops on the other side, maybe Ben Urich from the papers. And then you've got the kingpin. they got to take care of this guy because yep. he's messing everything up for them. And it's just, you know, an It would work like really that. well for Daredevil, shockingly well. Yeah. I got about halfway through and was like, <laughs> well, you know, like most projects, <laughs> it's kind of fall apart. Maybe someday. Um, how long have you been in the movie theater business? Uh, 16 years. Wow. So Amazing. it's it's what you call a career now. I yeah, I would, I would guess so. It's a long hobby, if not. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, but yeah, I love it. Like I've 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 run theaters for most of the last like fourteen years or so. Um, and it's I've worked at a diff- couple different theaters in town, and mm. I've worked for a couple different companies, and I just I love it. Like it's it is it's a blast. Like whether it's mainstream or whether it's art house, and I've worked at both. Like mm-hmm having people come to the movies and that moment when they come out and want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. I live for that. Yeah. Um, on my last show, I had a guest who had worked uh, at Blockbuster at a video store and it seems like working at a video store or working at a movie theater is like the, one of two options for uh, like film buffs <laughs> yep. um, who don't actually get into producing films. Uh, what, what do you think film buffs get out of working at a movie theater? Uh, I mean, most of it is, it is the talk about the film. Like I, m- or or turning someone on to something new. I think it's very similar to like mu- music lovers. Like the idea yeah. of like here you go, let's we're pushing something to you. Like this is this is something cool. Like, you know, Sing Street, I think it was last year it came out. Like I told everybody that came through the doors, this is the movie you should go. If you want to know what to go see, go see this. This huh. movie is awesome. Um, you know, anything like that, any kind of new weird movie where I'm like, this is actually legit good that you may not try. I want you to go see this and then come tell me afterwards if you liked it. That's cool. That to me is what it's about. And it's, you know, my family will email me stuff like, what should we go see? What should we go, you know, all all this kind of thing. (laughs) Mine does too, but they never like my suggestions. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean. A lot of for me is like figuring out, I like figuring out what the person's tastes are and then changing my recommendations based on that like as much as i would love to go like go see x y or z i'm not you know 
that's not always going to work depending on who the audience is. Like, yeah. And that's kind of more my job is I have to figure out what movie they should go because I would like them to come back again <laughs> and okay. watch another movie. <laughs> sure. I wish that was my experience when I worked in a movie theater. I worked at one for, I don't know, maybe like a summer. Um, it was the movie theater at the Mall of America okay. back when it was General Cinemas. Okay. And it was like 97, I'm dating myself, but it was 97. And it was like the worst movie I summer it. ever. It was Godzilla. <laughs> yeah. There was nothing good out yep. that year. Yeah, I mean, I worked... I, like when I first got into film, like I worked two summers at a at a Marcus Theater in okay. like '94 and '95, which were not great summers either. No. Um, well, we had Twister, and we had like I, the summer season wasn't great, but there was other stuff around. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, like there's a certainly there's a it's a different job when you are you know cleaning up popcorn and <laughs> yeah, and, or s- serving it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, like that's a completely different job, and and I certainly enjoy that too. Um, I've been lucky enough though, like since I've, since I've been back in it, uh, when I was an adult is, you know, I've been a manager and I've worked at a lot of different companies where the, the, the managers and the staff that work there are really passionate about movies and are in this industry because we love movies and we like sharing it with people. Sure. That was not my experience at the general (laughs) cinema of Mall of America. (laughs) Um, yeah. And also like the stupid thing was the only benefit you really get is like free movie passes. Yeah. And it was like a second job for me, so I was so busy. I never used one. Yeah, I never got to go to a free movie one time. Yeah, I mean, I ha- I'm lucky that I have the keys, so I can go in whenever <laughs> I want. Sure, <laughs> and yeah. kind of throw something on, and I do it, you know, once a week or so. Sure, but yeah, I mean, that is, I mean, it's no secret the movie industry does not pay well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and at least at that level, and sure. And you work weekends and holidays, so <laughs> your your chances to go see movies when your friends do is not really the all that common right frequent yeah no kidding um the uh i'd love to turn this into a commercial for showplace icon <laughs> i mean it's really it really is uh, my theater of choice and it isn't just because i live in kind of west minneapolis um close to it like every time i go there i'm always impressed at how this is so basic but like how clean it is and like how efficient it is and everybody's nice there and there's all these options like it's reserved seating and if you want there's the VIP options that let you have connection to you get food drinks you know you can take that into the theater and the sound quality is great like I kind of really discovered it a couple years ago um, probably for these Marvel movies or something like that but I was going to see you know like a 3D you know nice Dolby sound and stuff like that it's like a great theater it's really neat. Uh, we try. <laughs> <laughs> so modest. <laughs> uh, do you do you have any uh, like wacky stories from working in the theater oh, I have, industry? I have hundreds <laughs> that I'm probably not allowed to tell. Oh, okay, but, <laughs> all right. But all right. yeah, there's there's lots of gross things that I've cleaned up. There's oh, lots of weird things we've thrown people out for, and yeah, I mean, it's you work in weird hours, uh, late at night, and strange people come out late at night. Oh, sure. Like that's kind of what happens. And yeah. And it, I mean, on top of it, it's a volume business. Like it, I've, I have helped literally millions of people go to the movies. Sure. So I have seen all manner of person come through the doors. Well, as long as you get, keep running it as well as you do, I'm sure people I are going to keep coming through the doors. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the hope. Uh, as long as, well, I mean, as long as the studios make good movies, like it's, <laughs> Oh, well that you that's can't a control. whole other problem. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> Uh, well, the name of this show is Crafted Services. On every episode, we look at a film that's poorly rated, uh, generally lower than 50% on Rotten Tomatoes. 
uh, but one that's well remembered, uh, or I guess in this case has a completely bonkers story <laughs> attached to it. Uh, before I get started, uh, I want to say that this podcast is not in the pocket of Big Tomato. Uh, we're not endorsing Rotten Tomatoes. We're just using it as a metric in this case. Although, Matt, you probably hate Rotten Tomatoes because apparently no. it's killing the movie industry. I, yeah, I think that's the dumbest excuse I've <laughs> what ever is, heard. What is the argument behind that? I think that is like bean counters at the studios trying to find a reason to justify- To keep the jobs? Yeah, that they <laughs> greenlit just shit. Yeah, like just uh, reviews have been around forever, like forever. Right. And yeah. you, it used to be like you had your critic in the city, and we have two pretty solid ones in yeah. in uh, at Star Trib and and Pioneer Press. Like, and you, that's who you read. Like, especially when I worked at Landmark, um, and we did all sorts of foreign films and tiny indies. Like, people would just come in and go, like, "What was the star rating? Is like, is this good? Okay, because." you knew nothing about it. These were tiny films. These aren't giant Marvel blockbusters or anything like that. Yeah. Um, and I just think it's ridiculous. Make better movies. Like, I don't... <laughs> I don't... That's really what it comes down to. Like, I, there's so many examples this year is if you made a good movie... Oh, yeah. The people came out. Like, Get Out is a tiny film. <laughs> it made a lot of money. And it made a ton of money. Yeah. And it made it through word of mouth where people went, this is really fucking good. Yeah. You gotta go see this. Like, the yeah. idea that... And Rotten Tomatoes certainly helped that. Like I, th I mean, it certainly has an influence. But the idea that it kills it or cripples it, I think, is just ridiculous. It is yeah. the quality of the film. It, I think you're right. I think it, it really is a litmus uh, test for the overall quality of the industry because they're saying that this is the worst movie year in like 20 years or whatever. And yet, at the same time, you've got something like Get Out, which has made a ton of money. You got a bunch of really good possibly smaller movies that are great and then you've got all these big movies like transformers and yeah. whatever that have just crashed and burned yeah and there's been big popular studio like gardens of the galaxy made a ton wonder woman made a killing. yeah wonder woman yeah beauty and the beast made a killing like it's yeah. not like giant <laughs> properties aren't selling right it's that transformers 47 didn't do anything and like yeah. How many times do we go to, have to go to the Caribbean to watch pirates? Or how many times do we have to do... Like, some of this stuff is just so tired and old. And you just go, yeah. who cares? Like, they're not even... Like, clearly, Pirates of the Caribbean is not made for the U.S. It is made for foreign oh. sales. Same with Transformers. Yeah. So then to crap on Rotten Tomatoes because you made a business decision that you had nothing to do with U.S. box office just seems, it seems ridiculous. Yeah, leave the tomatoes alone. Yeah. Uh, totally random question. Um, I know that Netflix is a competitor for you guys, you know, all sure. streaming services. <laughs> everybody, well, everybody keeps saying that, you know, you guys are beset on all sides because people are watching movies on their phones and things like that. Yeah. I mean, do you think that there is a place you know, for your industry going forward for the next hundred years? Like yeah, I mean, I, I might have a slightly unique take on it. Like, as someone that consumes movies all the time and in any format that I can find, like, to me, I don't view Netflix as so much as a competitor. as just another way for people to to get into movies. Like, I, I see it as much like... If you love movies, there is a certain experience about going and seeing it on the big screen yeah. that these others can't match. Like they can certainly have good content, and they all do. Every whether it's Hulu or Amazon Prime or whoever you want to, whoever you know, pick your poison. Yeah. Um, I feel like the movies, yeah, there it's a shared communal experience that I think is is really special. It's part of the reason why I'm in it. Is it going to always be like the driving force in the industry? That I don't know. I don't know if anyone really knows mm -hmm. um and that's you know is it, it it could transform into like how the music industry where it's like 
concert going where it's this bigger thing for bigger acts and maybe it's tiny little stuff for smaller acts sure like who knows what's gonna happen well they said the phonograph would kill a uh, live music performance yes. <laughs> and they said that cinema would kill theater and yeah. that's happened so. and well i mean and they talk about like television killing theater and it's like it's a different style of storytelling yeah like, i don't i don't know anyone that like loves television that goes well i don't watch any movies like that's that's just not yeah if if you like that kind of visual storytelling you'll you'll consume both it's just a matter of how frequently you go out to the movies yeah and if it wasn't for those vhs tapes at video <laughs> update i never would have seen all the mad max films yep which would get me into the theater to see fury road yep. so yep. yeah well today's film is a is a fascinating one and it stands i think often it's described as one of those great uh cautionary hollywood tales <laughs> Uh, in the vein of uh, like an overnight with Troy Duffy or even like a Lost in La Mancha type situation. Um, a, geez, what the hell happened kind yep. of story. Um, and of course, we're talking about The Island of Dr. Moreau from 1996. It's at 22% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, it's a 4.4 on IMDb. That's not great. <laughs> and it doesn't, as far as I can tell, have a Metacritic score. I believe that. Yeah. <laughs> I like Metacritic. Um, I do too. I, act I actually think Metacritic is better than Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, and I someday I'll have an expert on the show to explain how the homogenization, you know, or the aggregation works, but for, somehow for me it seems a little more accurate or at least a little more it, honest. Yeah, I think Rotten Tomatoes to me seems very pass faily yes. while Ma Metacritic is more like this is on a grade scale. Right. Here's like, the actual score and yeah. here's how they median out or whatever. And then yeah, and then it's like an average of of each individual score. Yeah. And something you get, I think, from Metacritic, and I can't, I don't work for them, I can't really speak for them, is that I think it's more um, contemporary reviews. Because mm -hmm. Rotten Tomatoes, for instance, I'm, one of these days I want to do Blade Runner on the show because it qualifies. It was not well received when it came no, out. There's no all. way that it got the 98% that it's got on Rotten Tomatoes now. And I think Metacritic just doesn't have a lot of things on things like, for instance, Dr. Moreau, because nobody has gone back to do one of those look back, glowing, handjobby reviews <laughs> of Dr. Moreau. Well, we're going to talk about that for sure. Uh, it came out on August 23rd in 1996. Uh, it was directed by, and here's the point of contention, uh, John Frankenheimer, but of course there's another guy involved we'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, it made about $49 million on a $40 million budget. I think if you ask the uh, a producer, they'd say it was a failure. Uh, if you ask a bean counter, they'll say, hmm, made our money back, I guess. It's sort of a push. This is the subject uh, of an entire other movie. Yes. Uh, which we will try not to <laughs> just make this whole I, podcast Yeah, I mean, about. I think we can recommend to watch the other movie. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Um, we can recommend to watch it, uh, and we'll probably draw from it, but we're talking, of course, about Lost Soul, uh, The Doomed Journey of Richard Stanley's Life, which is a David Gregory documentary, detailing the ins and outs of this production and what exactly happened. But we're going to give our own version of that right now. I Did you see this in the theater? Uh, no, but I was I was working uh, as like an usher and stuff the summer before when they oh. first started like okay like putting up ads and stuff like that and pushing it like this was a big it was this was supposed to be a big yeah. release yeah I mean Val Kilmer was a superstar at this point Brando mm -hmm. was uh, of course a huge name mm -hmm. um, like this was supposed to be a giant blockbuster film absolutely yeah i remember seeing it i have no idea why i actually saw it except for there you know there were a lot less films back then just at the box office and if there's something even remotely genre or horror related i'd probably go see it but i also i didn't have a um 
uh, where the long tail ends uh, to tell me <laughs> the story of the film. So I didn't know any of that going in. I just knew, okay, adaptation of the book. Yep. H.G. Uh, Wells, you know, from 1896, uh, which I was into. I was into Wells, and I thought, okay, this will be a thing. And little did I know exactly what I was going to get into. I should mention that Lost Soul is 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. I believe that. It's a good movie. Uh, it is good. I watched it uh, in preparation for this, actually. And it's a it's a it's it's really good in terms of what you want from a documentary, which is let's get the story and let's also get it from all sides. Yep. But as far as the production goes, I don't know what I wanted them to do, like yeah, CGI I mean, graphics and stuff. It's 20 years later and they're doing... It's yeah. A t- it's a talking head doc. Oh, like. definitely. Yeah. Which is fine. Yeah. But I mean, like, the 100% to me says, like... People hated the movie we're talking about, but they were really interested in the story. Of- yeah, I think that's what it is. Like, I think it's people just going like it's a train wreck. Like, and it's a oh, train. Yeah. The movie was a train wreck from the moment it was green lit. Oh yeah. Like the amount of the amount of craziness. It's so hard to keep track of what, who is what role and at what point. Because it's all swapping like crazy. Yeah. And that's in the first twenty minutes of the movie. Like, and you have certain people. You know, Rob Morrow. Who has a prominent role in the documentary right. isn't even in the movie. He's not in the movie <laughs> because he was only around for like two days. Yeah, I don't like, think <laughs> I don't know if they even shot anything with him in. I don't it, know. So. <laughs> but yeah, his story is fascinating. You're just like, oh my god, it's a crazy story. <laughs> um, and one of the things I wonder about, one of my problems with the film in general, and this is just totally throwing it out there, is that I'm not really sure what the theme of the story is. Like, what is the movie really about? Like, Wells was a was a satirist, mm-hmm. and he was satirizing. He was coming off a hot run of a couple books that were all satirizing um, Victorian culture, ripping into British society, um, colonialism, and things like that. And I just don't know if those themes really translate, or nobody, and I guess in my opinion, nobody has found a really solid way to make those themes translate to now yeah i mean i think it's playing a lot with like the concept of man playing with things it shouldn't be especially right. like the god king kind of which concept is well trod territory at yeah this point. yeah and i think uh i think the movie does a really bad job of playing with that um and i think like there's been a couple different adaptations of oh there's been dr yeah. moreau a whole and bunch they're kind of all over the board on how well they've handled the subject. It, yeah. it feels like a really different, like it's this tiny book. It's what, 180? It's not very long. Pages. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, and it just seems like it's, it for whatever reason, people haven't been able to figure out like what is, what makes this story compelling? Cause it, yeah. it should be. Except like, just, ooh, cool animal people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think it's really telling. Like I, I bought the Blu-ray so we could do this show. <laughs> and, <sorry>. um, <laughs> um, and like the primary thing, you know, on the cover art is effects by Stan Winston. And I'm like, well, yeah, that's really all they got on this movie. Pretty much. <laughs> is is that's really what they had. That's what they sold. That's what they probably pitched it on. And, yeah. and that even like nowadays, like, yeah, that's really all there is that holds up. Like, cause the themes, the, the actual movie that I watched is really boring. Like it's really bland and boring. Like that's my biggest problem with it is yeah. it's not compelling. No, the set there's a setup that's pretty good, um, and then the middle just falls out. There's mm-hmm. nothing happens in the middle, and then it's just a big rush to the end. Like once, uh, Brandon yeah, it has like it parts. It has it has a real like story problem in the middle where it feels like scenes are missing, which is what yeah. which causes it, it the must end be true. reaction. Yeah, like <laughs> once you once you watch the documentary, you're like oh yeah, there's probably like three or four gone, like because it makes this massive jump in the middle of the movie. Where suddenly, you know, 
where it goes from these creatures starting to realize they have their own agency and can kind of do anything. And then suddenly they're in the middle of a rebellion. Like it's right. And you're just like, what happened? Um, and you never like, you never identify with any real character. I think you're supposed to with David Thewlis's, but mm-hmm. he's kind of this outside observer. He's very much a Victorian protagonist. Yeah. He's the guy who just wrote it all down. Yeah. Was there yeah. And you're just kind of like that. There's no real, emotion it's not very cinematic no and it's and on top of it like this is one of his first roles and he's kind of a theatrical actor Mm -hmm. um and when you're you're having him kind of just observe sure his performance is nice like i mean because he's a good actor but at the same point it's not really doing anything to draw the the viewer into the film like what why do i care that this ridiculous guy painted white <laughs> right was, yeah. is somebody we should be care about yeah or his drug addicted or whatever is going on with val kilmer who is shirtless you mean the character yeah right? yeah like all, the character like you don't really identify with any of these like val kilmer went from being like this brilliant scientist to a loony bin in essentially i don't know three scenes like it yeah. was there's a lot of stuff that happens and you're just kind of like you f- you don't really understand why you should care about any of these people. Yeah, and I'm not sure and it's funny because he's introduced Thulis's character as a essentially like a negotiator, like a not Something really an ambassador, like but yeah. some kind of diplomatic role for the UN and he's flying somewhere to stop a war or something. And so you'd think, okay, maybe not the most exciting Beastman movie ever, <laughs> but we could have philosophical debate between Brando and uh, Thulis's character. I would honestly, if you set it up as like, like a courtroom drama kind of thing, where you're having oh. like debate or something, I think it would kind of work. Okay. Like, um, I, I mean, it would be completely different than the actual book, but I think you could get into that kind of sure. idea of what is man, what 12 is twelve angry beast men, yeah, yeah, something like that. But like, <laughs> and if you have a character like Thulis who's supposed to be like some sort of moderator, like yeah, but at the same point, like they've for some reason. They want him on the island, and that's never really explained. No, or why he would, what well, value he would bring. Well, it's it, it's it's literally not explained because near the end of the movie, <laughs> okay, we're jumping all over, but that's just that's just the show. Um, when Furza Bulk sends him off to get the serum, yeah. he just disappears. <laughs> he just wanders around, and she finds him like later, and it's like to get that serum at all yeah but he goes to the lab and he sees that there's samples that have been taken from him and we never get any explanation as to what that's supposed to be and my sort of headcanon on that is they set up very clearly man is bad man is the real animal with this opening of the two guys trying to kill each other on the raft and then the very ham-handed like news footage or whatever thing at the end so in the middle you'd think okay so um it's not prendick that's the guy in the book uh douglas um thulis's character He's going to represent the best instincts of man to like yeah. make peace and stuff like that. Never exists. In no, the, in the movie. at no point. Except for the end where he uses his, you know, his negotiation uh, tactics to turn the animals against each other, <laughs> which, which is, is a nice twist. It's a and nice would twist, maybe fit into their theme, but is never built upon in the rest of the film. But at the same point, when you're setting up the theme that like man is the real monster, and then you you end the movie with man turning the pure angelic beasts against one another it's right. like doesn't that just reinforce the theme that men are awful and really <laughs> and it's so it's almost if it had just been creature feature for 90 minutes 
um, it would be less disappointing than having these little tatters of, oh, that was might have been a good idea. But yeah. Nope, blown through it. Um, this has been, as you mentioned, adapted many times. It's been adapted seven times to film, including this one. And that includes the two uh, French and German silent um, uh, version um, before the pre-Hays Code version uh, called Island of Lost Souls, mm -hmm. starring Charles Lawton and Bela Lugosi, which, have you seen that? I have, but it's been years. Well, it's, it's one of those ones like every time Criterion has a sale, I'm like, I really should buy Sure, that. yeah. <laughs> and as like you kind of pointed out before, doesn't really capture anything. It's just a jungle pick, basically, yeah. from the 30s. I haven't seen the 77 version, which I've always wanted to. I haven't either. I tried to watch it for this, uh, and I love Michael York. Yeah. And I like Burt Lancaster, too. I've heard it's kind of loony. Like, it just goes... Yeah, and it takes a while to get going, too. Yeah, I believe it. And, I mean, it's the 70s. Right. <laughs> and Yeah, and so... And plus, they're not going to get that crazy. So, like, the Beastmen, it's just, like, Planet of the Apes rejects, basically. Nothing mm -hmm. really that fantastic there. Um, so it wasn't until this guy, who we should probably start talking about, we should, uh, Richard Stanley came on <laughs> and was like, "This is a real, this is a real thing. I'm going to do this. Yeah. This this story deserves to be told in the way that I want to tell it, with human animal uh, hybrid orgies yeah. and drugs and all this other stuff." Um, Richard Stanley's kind of a weird guy. He is, but he's fascinating. He is fascinating. Um, the I poet could, shirt I, and cowboy hat dictionary tells me, you. Oh yeah, sure. <laughs> it tells you everything you know. He's a South African filmmaker, mm -hmm. uh, and he kind of burst onto the scene insofar as you can in a real small indie sort of market um, with his uh, initial uh, first film, Hardwire. Yes, which is a hardware. Excuse me. Yeah, hardware. hardware, which is a phenomenal film. It's. It's all right. Oh no, it's so good. It's so good. <laughs> it's it's good in that like well, you said meet meet the feebles before. It's yeah. good in that early uh, like Peter Jacksony sort of. Yeah, I don't I care mean, too much about the plot or. What's I would going argue on. like it's probably the sleaziest movie ever made. Like, it's so creepy and how especially like how it's presented, but it also has this kind of punk rock vibe to yeah. it too. Have you seen Dust Devil? His I have movie? seen Dust Devil, which I also you love. You mentioned Sleaze. Yeah. That's there too. Yeah. Dust He's... Devil is a movie like I I am blown away that was released in theaters. Like I don't know how Well, thank the Weinsteins. For yeah, that. yeah. I mean and that's kind of how hardware got out too. Um Dust Devil is it's hard to track down. If you get a chance to watch it, like it is it's a trip. Like it is it's a movie that's throwing a lot at you. I am sure there is a ton I am not picking up. Um, <laughs> well, and also, and it's we're uh, it's uh, steeped in uh, the culture of South Africa, not mm -hmm. just the country, but the region of South Africa. Yeah, the whole thing is shot in Namibia and has all to do with um, African like witch doctors and spirits and things. Yeah, like that. and like these spirit guides and demons and all yeah. this kind of stuff. Um, and it's. It, like visually, both the movies I think are really impressive, especially for like their budget and stuff. Oh yeah, um, I gotta say that, that about hardware, that's for sure. Like it's he was a big lover of um, Stanley of um, stop motion and Ray Harryhausen and stuff mm -hmm. like that, and that comes through. Like the creature in hardware is awesome. Yeah, it's great, and um, yeah, it's just it's an impressive movie if you can find it. Like I, I would hard it's it's a hard movie for me to go like you're gonna like this. Like it's more like you just need to go experience and see like. Hey, this kind of movie was actually made and released on like a thousand screens. Like that's kind of crazy. Yeah, uh, this is a um, this is a New Line movie. Uh, remember when you used to see New Line and yeah. go, "Oh, great! I can't Super wait!" Super awesome. Was this the beginning of the end for New Line? Probably. <laughs> <laughs> uh, have we talked about the um, plot? Do you want to summarize the story briefly? I mean, I don't know who. who I don't know if know. there's a ton of plot to it. Like it's it's a. a 
as we said, like hundred pages, like you said. Yeah, I mean, a, a man is essentially lost at sea. He's he's picked up by this boat. He's offered some lodging on this remote island, and he know he knows of the doctor that own like Moreau is a well known geneticist, you know, mm-hmm. and scientist, and and fairly well respected at least is how it's pitched. Yeah, uh, and that he can you know find lodging here, and eventually you know the another ship will be coming by that could pick him up. Um, and when he gets there, he discovers that Moreau is performing these uh, genetic experiments on animals, essentially crossing their genes with humans to create mm-hmm. these kind of animal-human hybrids um, and trying to build a pure civilization on mm-hmm. the island. And then, of course, things go bad. Yeah. And-, <laughs> and, of course, like I kind of mentioned before, I still don't know what his goal was or why it was turning beasts into men. It's that idea of man is the real monster. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if his idea was that, because there's that short brief exchange um, at the dinner table about, it's just kind of religious crap that was thrown in by a screenwriter probably. But if man is really evil and beasts, you know, the noble sort of savage beast, if we could give them human faculties, then they would be the best humans. I don't know if it's that I, or if it's I, good to be a man or an animal because later on the animals are like, you know, hey, we're not men. We're animals. Yeah. But then they're running around with machine guns and they're like, we're men. It's like, what's what's the real point here? Yeah. I mean, it feels like this was a, a lot of that was designed by committee like <laughs> and no one really going like, well, if the concept is that animals are pure, aren't you tainting them the moment you add if you're, human you're, genes? Right. To yeah, them? and like, that is a very religious uh, <laughs> sort of theme there. Yeah, like so why are we doing like it just everything is kind of muddled and it all has like it it's the problem with the actual themes and and to a degree the plot is like the moment you really start thinking about it, it has a million of questions that are not good. Like none of it that helps support the movie. Right. They're you not just yeah. go Oh God! What are where are we going? Yeah. Why why is this the direction that we pick? There's a lot of nits to, to pick. <laughs> yeah, and it's weird because I feel like a tenth grade kid who paid attention in English class could sort of put together the themes of, uh, you know, man is fallen or tainted or whatever, and so we're sort of spreading that to the animals and stuff like that. And like you said, maybe it's committee, maybe it's uh, the different screenwriters that are all involved, which we'll talk about in a second. That just leave this thing like. Well, I I can see the sh- general shape of how the puzzle should be, but the pieces are everywhere. Yeah, I mean, I think you could make a really interesting movie about abuse through it. Like, him, Oh, yeah. I think you could really do something cool with that. Somebody got um, Brando's script from, like, 94. So it was, like, in the early sort of drafts of it. Um, and it was on eBay. And it's got his handwritten notes on it. And as you can imagine for a Brando of the time, a lot of it's gobbledygook. <laughs> but his focus seemed to be, like, he thought that the real theme of the movie was um, a condemnation of toxic masculinity. And I think that's probably there. Like, I think you could, I think that's there and present in the book. Like, I don't think that was when Wells wrote it, no. but I think it translates. No, he was like, masculinity, thumbs up. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that translates well now, though. Like, it could be like you have, the humans could be all male. You could make it like that and, and make it this kind of thing where they are constantly abusing this society, you know, this serfdom almost. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there, uh, as a rebel uprising to, like, you can make that movie. Um, and I think it would be it would be kind of cool. Like if you if you do it well and you have this animal uprising kind of thing, I think mm-hmm. it could be really neat. But Moreau or Island of Doctor Moreau doesn't really seem to have. It has it, the problem is it has about eight different directions it it could go, and it decides to go in all eight. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, and that's not, you can't blame that on Richard Stanley because he didn't direct the movie. <laughs> no, he was there like a week. <laughs> He's, I know, it's, and this is this crazy story that we're talking about, of course. He was hired to make the movie on the strength of his previous work. And I think it's getting guys like Val Kilmer and Brando that really killed him. I think they pushed for that to give it money and legitimacy. But yeah. if this had been like a less than $10 million picture, it might have turned out fine. But it became, as movies do, and at the time, 30, $35 million was $70, 80000000 million. Oh, I think it's even bigger than that. Yeah, so this was a big deal. And hes it's funny because he's still around. Um, he's 50, so that means like he was 30 or 31. He was so young back Yeah, he then. was very young. I mean, hes he seems... I mean, he's a fascinating guy. I'm sure, like, his pitch blew people oh, yeah. away. Like, and I one can't of those, imagine. Yeah. His, like, I mean, he has all the drawings and the documentary shows yeah. all this kind of stuff, and you're like, wow. Like, I mean, he speaks with such passion and such knowledge. And, I mean, the idea, like, I mean, he's also related, um, his, what was his great grandfather or whatever it was? Is, um, um, the, the Stanley, the uh, Henry Morton Stanley. Yeah, the and actual... like this, uh, and this, I'm sure he's pitching stuff like the idea of going into the jungle and into right. the, the savages and all this kind of thing and finding humanity in these people. Like, right. I mean, he speaks with like this, this, his, his you know, this such conviction. Like, I'm sure people were like, wow, like this is yeah. great. I mean, and, and they talk in the documentary is he did the same pitch to Brando. Right. Because when Brando came in, like that's when his job was on the line. Like, because now we have a real movie. Like, yeah. Instead of and this I think little... the, the studio thought, oh, Brando's going to chew this guy up. Yeah. So we kind of want to get As rid of him and send does. him to Brando. Yeah. <laughs> but he really hit it off with Brando. Yep. And I think a lot of it was because, like you mentioned before, Henry Morton Stanley, the whole, you know, Dr. Livingston, I presume, yep. guy, um, the character in Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad. Yep. Is based Kurtz on that. was based on that guy. And th- his. Brando's headspace was still there, so they kind of got together over that. Yeah. Fun fact: um, 1896, Doctor Moreau comes out. 1897, Heart of Darkness came out. Came out. Wells and Conrad were friends, and Wells actually got real mad and had a sort of breakup with Conrad after that because he accused that. Conrad yeah, of stealing, of stealing ideas yeah. from his book for for uh, Heart of Darkness. Yeah. Um, so he's a guy. He's a visionist. He's a uh, or visionary. He's a creative guy. You can tell. All right, put a clapper in his hand and see how he does. Mm-hmm. And it seems like he maybe didn't have the, I don't know. Time the, management skills? Time management skills for <laughs> sure. Or possibly the disposition uh, to direct a film, especially on an island uh, it, off of Australia, yeah. you know, Queensland, Australia, in the middle of nowhere. <clears throat> and well, it's it, ironic they brought John Frankenheimer in, who at this point had already replaced like two other directors on different films. So he's like the uh, pinch hitter guy. Complete, com- totally opposite yep. personality on the spectrum of uh, of a, a Richard Stanley. Like, a, tell this guy, go get over there, do this. Yep. Uh, no nonsense. Very old school, no nonsense. Yeah. I am the director, I am in charge. Right. You are all ants kind of thing. <laughs> right. And like, yeah, I mean, I think if Stanley, like, he's like, as much as, as big as his personality is, it never seemed like he was good at directing people on yeah. how to, to meet that vision. And I think that was probably what ultimately killed him is you have two people in Brando and and Kilmer who basically took over the set and were were also at war with one another. Like they hated each other's guts and it became like this petty feud between the two of them because they're like, who cares if it's the studio's money? Like we got paid. We don't care about anybody else. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they are basically, it's implied that they are trying to sink the film. Yeah. And I think Kilmer has come out recently talking about like his, his behavior during like this time, not even just during this movie is like something he's, pretty 
feels pretty bad about. Like yeah. he was he was not in a good place. No, um, <laughs> but he was Batman. Yeah, so he, he could Batman. do anything he wanted he to was do. Iceman, and he was. Iceman. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so, and, you know, the story's in Lost Soul, the documentary, like we said, but after he got fired, uh, he basically sort of went on a walkabout uh, to use the local uh, parlance and ended up on a farm, you know, who north, where. yeah, who knows where, but like north on the coastline or something. And long story short, um, after Frankenheimer was on the film, Frankenheimer's looking for more extras and they got local, like, hippies that were living in the woods, basically. Yep. And through total chance, like one night, some of these hippies were in the woods, and Richard Stanley's like, "What's going on?" And he goes and meets these guys, and they're like, "Oh, we're on this movie. <laughs> it's the Island of Doctor Moreau." And so, long story longer, uh, <laughs> they actually managed to sneak him onto the set in a dog mask, yep. and he becomes an extra yeah. a beast in the movie he so, was originally so directing. So he's actually in the movie. Yes, <laughs> and what and which is like great story if it ends there, right? But what a, it's a legend. No, it's all real. If you watch this documentary, he's got the mask that he wore, and you can see stills from the production of a guy wearing that mask, and you go, could be anybody. But there's one close-up, and I looked for this, there's a crazy ring on the guy's hand that is totally a Richard Stanley ring. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's all true. Well, and, and that kind of stuff is so crazy. Like, when you hear the story of, like, he climbed up a tree and wouldn't come down, you're like... <laughs> Which is disputed. May maybe it's true. Yeah, I don't know. At the, like... Yeah. like he snuck back on set and hid in a dog head, like for <laughs> evidently a couple weeks. So maybe he did climb a tree. I don't know what's it's possible. Going on. Yeah. Well, we're doing what we said we weren't going to do. <laughs> Talking about Lost Soul. Uh, let's talk about the cast. Um, mm -hmm. Of course, uh, Bruce Willis and James Woods were originally up for the roles of what's his name, Douglas, Douglas. That's it, and Montgomery, um, respectively. Um, those roles eventually went to. Um, the guy, the werewolf guy from Thulis, Harry Potter, uh, David Thewlis. Thewlis. Well, <laughs> Kilmer was supposed to be in that role. Yes, and then decided, showed up and decided, no, I'm going to play this other role. Yeah, which is it, why they had to recast right twice. Yeah, he was originally the lead. <laughs> um, and the story goes that every so th this is a perfect storm, and there was actually a literal storm hurricane uh, on the set. But this is a perfect storm of things going wrong in people's lives because Kilmer basically was getting divorced to mm -hmm. Joanne Whaley at the time. Yep. Actually, Bruce Willis pulled out because he was getting divorced from Demi Moore. And so he just did not want to. I mean, he was a tyrant for, of the ego persuasion, but he also just, you know, understandably did not want to do this movie in the middle of nowhere. And so Stanley... Well, and it would be a long shoot. Like, it's a I'm, long shoot. A long yeah. shoot in the middle of nowhere that they essentially built everything there. Yeah. So I'm sure everyone's going like, oh God, we're going to be crapping in pots and pans for <laughs> right. three months. And Stanley um, convinced him to sort of swap roles mm -hmm. uh, with the other part uh, to give him sort of less screen time. So he became Montgomery. And then, of course, as you mentioned, Rob Morrow was going to play um, the original role of Douglas. Theory for you, Rob Morrow, kind of the 80s Tom Cavanaugh. <laughs> Tom Cavanaugh, kind of the 90s Zachary Levi. <laughs> Zachary Levi, the 2000s blank. <laughs> Any one of the guys on Big Bang Theory? I don't know. Probably. Uh, but of course, uh, Rob Morrow was only on it for a couple of days and um, knew enough to know that things were heading south. <laughs> yeah. I love the fact that like his story, called his lawyer. Yeah, his story is like two hours. Or his his time there is like two days long and is literally like I got there. It's awful. I essentially called my lawyer and agent and cried to get off the movie. I gotta get out of here. <laughs> like yeah. this is crazy. Get me away. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and he made the right choice, it looks like, there, because he got out pretty clean. <laughs> he seemed pretty confident. Pretty clean from this thing. I think it was a good idea to switch um, Montgomery, switch roles. 
Because to have Val Kilmer, who is one of the highlights of this film, I think, uh, deliver this loopy performance. I don't know what he was going through, what he was doing, but it's fun to watch. Yes. To have him play the straight, you know. Oh, it would be super That's the David Thewlis role. Yeah. It it works better as like a serious British actor. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. And like um, one of the... um, uh, so the script was written by Richard Stanley originally, um, then of course rewritten. Um, a guy named, I think Ron Hutchinson came in and rewrote it when Frankenheimer came on. He collaborated a lot with Frankenheimer. And originally, um, Michael Hur did a pass on the script, and he's the guy that worked on Apocalypse Now. And so, in my mind, again, crazy theory, but I feel like Montgomery became this character that was very similar to like the Dennis Hopper character feel, in Apocalypse yeah. Now. I think that's... This guy who's like flitting around, you know, the crazy Kurtz-like character. Yeah, he's been here so long that he's been pulled in by the whole thing. Yeah, but and the, it's a good look. I Yeah, and I think it would work better if they had set it up the entire movie kind of like that. Instead <laughs> right. of it just being like one scene he's normal and the next scene... He's Dennis Hopper. Right, he's, he's on drugs and he's running around. Yeah, yeah. I really like the part though where he throws the <laughs> the squeak toy to the dog boy or whatever, and he's like, "There you go, dog boy, take that." Uh, Brando. I mean, how do you get around Brando? He's huge, but uh, he literally is huge, and it was a big deal that he came onto this film, and everybody on the film, even down to John Frankenheimer, essentially did this dog because yeah. they wanted to work with Brando. Yeah, and the Brando, and I understand it. Like, oh yeah, I but mean, the Brando they got. Is not well, it's late. <laughs> it's late, Brando. It is late, Brando. <laughs> and this, I didn't look back in research for before this, but this has to. This is definitely what uh, sort of solidified or cemented the idea of Crazy Brando going forward. Oh yeah, I mean, South Park essentially has <laughs> has made a mint off of this Brando. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like that's, um, and I think this is what unfortunately is what a lot of people think of brando like yeah. when they at least or at least of our generation and probably later is that he was kind of nuts and oh yeah he may not have been like who knows like i don't you don't know enough about it he was going through his own trauma where his oh, daughter died yeah and, she committed suicide and yeah. he probably was clearly in a i don't give a shit mode. oh yeah there's um, a great quote in the documentary where somebody says um that he's showing the the quote legendary contempt for what he does yep uh which is just like Wow. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if you listen to the WTF podcast at all. Ron Perlman was on it, who is is a bit player in this. He is a bit player. (laughs) Which is a great episode. Um, Those two talk quite a bit about this episode, about this movie, too. And he talks about, like, his love of Brando and his chance to work with Brando and and how he he was introduced to Brando on, like, the first day of shooting is he is playing this blind kind of goat Goat priest thing. Um, and he literally had to wear contacts that made him blind, so he couldn't hit his marks, and he yeah. had to like memorize where he's stepping. And he kept banging into Brando, and <laughs> so like his introduction to Brando is like, you know, oh, oh my God, sir, I, you know, I respect you so much. You're such an idol of mine. And Brando's like, fuck off, Quit, stop hitting me. Like, <laughs> right. Learn your get learn your hooves your off my feet. And yeah. like, and Perlman's like, I was crushed. Like I literally was crushed by my idol going you suck at this job right <laughs> yeah also having to be on the production for four and a half months yeah. after you were scheduled for maybe five weeks <laughs> the entire thing was scheduled f- and uh, you know the schedule is always flexible i'm sure but from six it went from six weeks to six months yeah which is insane when yeah. you're in the jungle in uh in australia yeah it's it's too bad you have to think that i was trying to think like isn't don juan DeMarco was like 93 94 probably um probably around there and that was like pretty manageable brando uh but yeah, that's not the Brando people were getting. And it, I think that because Frankenheimer wanted to work with him so bad, 
he we never found found out what Stanley would have done with him really um, as an actor and director relationship. But I think he let him get away with a lot of stuff. Oh, I think he let him get away is, with anything. This is the part now in the production where he's dressing up like the Pope and he's putting an ice bucket on his head. Yeah, and he's like, and he's, oh, let's well, do and this. he's covering himself in white paint so right. his stand-in can be in it. Yeah, right. He, he <laughs> completely starts changing people's roles. Yeah, because um, I can't think of the the little person's name that the he... little we should definitely talk about the little person uh <laughs> his name was um nelson something or other uh nelson de la rosa okay yeah uh, like he essentially creates a part for him yeah and this is the <laughs> you know the infamous mini me part yep. basically yeah which i have to say uh and we can talk about the stan winston stuff later but the um his costume or his look was really good because he doesn't look like that. I mean, he looks, you know, fairly normal, this little small guy. Mm-hmm. But they have this really weird look. And in the book, um, the sloth creature, which I guess he's supposed to be, is described as looking like a flayed child. And it's like, well, you guys pulled that off. Yeah, I mean, he's got kind of like a fetus-y kind of yeah, look. Like, right. Just kind of... Slightly gooey. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he Brando just fell in love with this guy. Yeah. <laughs> well, had... <laughs> yeah, I mean, he seemed like in the documentary they talk about like he's a ladies man and like all this stuff well, like, and he's like yeah. super popular i think he's from what like indonesia or uh, dominican republic dominican republic yeah. and like that he's just super popular there and like just evidently is like a really cool guy and brando is just fascinated by him yeah so let's give him more lines let's give him a bigger part <laughs> sadly uh that part came from uh marco hofschneider's character of, yep. of m ling who was really set out to be the i've heard this I don't know if it, it really works or reflects at all, but there's supposed to be a lot of the Tempest in this, or at least in its concept. Okay. You got this guy with power. He lives on an island. He's got a daughter. There's a shipwreck. And then so Emling's character is supposed to be the young, he's a dog boy, but uh, sort of ingenuity, sort of innocent, who mm-hmm. sees all this happen. And that's what Marco signed on for, all cut to shit. Yeah. Um, lines are going to uh, Nelson. Um, Val Kilmer is like... <laughs> why is this guy so <laughs> apparently there's a competition between them where he's like hey i saw that movie and pretty good it's like oh thanks he's like if it comes down to you and me it's gonna be me <laughs> <laughs> and this this young guy's like what the fuck? What? what did i do it's his part in the documentary is great because he's the guy who's just like look at this yeah I he got, got he got totally screwed yeah. like i mean you gotta you feel for the guy so much like he was so excited, like this was his first big role, yeah. and it's just gone. Like, like he he is the summation of like what happens when you have big Hollywood stars that can oh, do yeah. whatever they want. He like, got ground to dust. Yeah, yeah, and they didn't think twice about it. No, not at all. <laughs> um, we should talk about some of the other people in the film. Uh, there's a guy named Peter Elliott. Uh, he plays Assassin, um, a ape type guy. He's the other five finger man. Yep. Who apparently had a big subplot that got cut because he's got a baseball bat, and I heard that at one point there was some sort of subplot where they were like teaching them to play baseball, baseball? in the woods. Sure, that's all gone. But he's a famous um, sort of animal performer, and in a, I didn't mean to do two jungle movies in a row on the show, <laughs> but we talked about Congo on the last show, and he didn't perform in Congo, but he was one of the ape trainers training okay. people to act more animal-like. Uh, and I have to say. That's one of the highlights of the film. Uh, I yeah, think. I mean, I think in Everybody general, acts real weird, and uh, yeah, I think it all like all that kind of stuff works. The effects are really good. They they stand up pretty well. I mean, it's a lot of practical effects. Which oh yeah, is why I think it there's holds very up so little. Well. In fact, when there is CGI, it stands out. Mm-hmm. Um, not because it's bad necessarily. I mean, it's mid '90s CGI, but because it's so jarring. Suddenly, there's a bunch of little monkey rats, and you're yep. like, wait, what's this? 
you couldn't have built one or two monkey rat puppets. You yeah, know, to... I mean, Stan Winston evidently, you know, clearly still brought his A game, even though yeah. a lot of other people weren't. Oh my god! But yeah, I mean, I think in general, like all that, like that creature effects and those people and those extras, clearly were giving their all and doing the best they can, and probably horrible conditions like i can't imagine what it would be like to be covered in all of that plaster waiting and, for hours yeah, for brando like, to come out of this, this trailer humidity and heat <laughs> yeah. and, oh my god like that scene where and this might <laughs> that real world situation might have contributed to this but the scene where um for was a bulk brings him to the village um and there's also a weird backstory that we never get about this. There's a crashed plane in the sort of animal village, yep. and he walks in, and he's got his, he's covering his mouth because the stink is apparently so bad. And there's all these just wretched creatures walking around. Like that was one of the cool parts of the movie to me. It's like, oh, this could have been the whole thing, mm-hmm. and the studio probably would have balked because it would have been like you said, beautiful in a <laughs> gross way, very grotesque. Yeah, way. they wouldn't have gone for that. But yeah, that's that part where he comes in, he's like, take me to Doctor Zayas, that sort of scene. Mm-hmm. Um. Ferris Bulk, we can talk about her. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the same year as The Craft, which is a real big thing for her. Um, I know that she was really um, distraught or distressed when uh, Stanley got fired because I think that she really found like a connection with him. Yes. Yeah, and I mean, you can you can tell from the documentary. like she, she is clearly someone that is a fan and probably still a friend with Stanley in some yeah. respects. Like, I mean, her story is essentially like she, she got in a cab and drove to Sydney, which is... Right. I don't know, 20 Which was hours away. Very far away from where <laughs> they were. Yeah. yeah. It's and on the, just yeah. like, she's young, but like, she's just breaking out. Yeah. Um, and, you know, wanted to walk off the film. Yep. And was, you know, basically at the uh, behest of her career was persuaded to stay. But she did okay. Yeah, I think she's fine. I mean, they, they talk about like there was going to be a bigger kind of romantic subplot with her um, that gets cut which also would have just been kind of weird right um, but in every adaptation of this that they've done they've always added a subplot with a love interest which yeah. doesn't exist in the book i don't know why i mean I, it's I, a hollywood that, thing that I feels like a hollywood thing where like we have to have a romantic interest in here yeah for the women i don't know i think like i think that's really what these suits think like oh that'll get the women in to watch this movie is we'll have a little bit of a romance and that's what they'll like about with a cat lady yeah yeah we'll have a guy have sex with a half cat like sure. that'll that'll bring him in to, um, and and then she'll give birth to a kitten yeah which was apparently something that was pitched for the 77 version <laughs> Barbara Carrera would give birth to a well, kitten at the end. Cat people was big back then. Well, it was. <laughs> uh, and Michael York is like, I'm not doing that. <laughs> so you guys can do what you want. I'm not doing that. Uh, a guy named Daniel Rigney, who was a young actor, played in The Hyena Swine, who's sort of the, again, muddled themes, but kind of the villain, but also really a big victim in this. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the disappointing thing for me. Like, they didn't know what to do with him, mm-hmm. so you never really... Like, are we rooting for him? Are we? Yeah, we like want he's to... the he should have been the like he should have been portrayed as the victim. Yeah, um, and and made his story a tragedy, and instead they kind he just of, turns into an asshole. Yeah, <laughs> and he's just brutal. He's as bad as anything else. Yeah, and so it's it just muddles again. It's an, another problem where it just muddles what the theme is, and you're not really sure what you're supposed to do or who you're supposed to root for. Yeah. Uh, that actor died soon after the movie came out in 97 from a brain hemorrhage, unfortunately. Oh, um, a couple more players on the film. Uh, Tamura Morrison plays uh, Azazello, one of the um, valets, I believe. Uh, and he is Django Fett. He's the guy that played Django Fett there in the uh, Star Wars prequels. Uh, also, another Star Wars actor who's in this, I think. <laughs> His name is William Hootkins. And 
this guy is sort of like the Zelig of like late seventies, early eighties sci-fi because he played Porkins yeah. in Star Wars. Uh, he played Eckhart in Batman. Uh, he was he's a Stanley guy. He was in uh, all of Stanley's. He's movies. in Hardware, yeah, yeah. He's in Dust Devil too, uh, and he played uh, Munson and Flash Gordon. Supposedly, he's in the credits. He's even in the opening credits as never as no Kirill. I can't find him in the movie. Yeah, I would have no There's idea. There's no character playing. named Kirill in the movie. <laughs> now, there is one in Stanley's script, and so I wonder if this is a situation where all the contracts were signed, all the agents and the negotiations were made, and this guy was billed for this thing, then was totally cut, cut. or all of the scenes were dropped, and so he's just still in the credits. Must, yeah, that that must be something. Yeah. But he's a, he's the top men guy from uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Okay, yeah. yeah. Top men on this, yeah. <laughs> So anyway, that worked out for him, I guess. <laughs> uh, and then uh, Mark uh, Dacascos is in this as well. Um, he is the um, he plays uh, the Panther guy who gets killed very oh, yeah, early yeah, yeah. on. Yep. And he's probably he's a stunt actor. Um, he's probably best known as the Iron Chef guy. <laughs> he's the chairman of Iron <laughs> Chef. Uh, so yeah, uh, it was shot like we said in uh, Cairns or Cairns, as they say uh, in Australia, and it went six months, and it was apparently. You know, it was a nightmare all the way through. And you have to imagine that they're not literally on an island in the middle of nowhere. They, they did pick an island to shoot the exterior type shots for. But just deep in the middle of the jungle, and you've got people who... In the documentary, there's a woman who plays the sow lady, I think. And she talks about how... I mean, it's clear that she's just a character, actor, you know, yeah, day player, performer. for the most part. And she got hired to do this thing for four weeks, and it turned into six months. And her story, she's the only one they talk to. There have to be 100 people like her. <laughs> and they talk about how the whole thing became this crazy, like, apocalyptic sort of party where they're all just partying. I Why would they people not? Are, I mean... are screwing each other and they're doing <laughs> drugs and they're all just waiting for something to happen. Like, it's... <laughs> Welcome to Lost Souls, the, yeah. the, the podcast, I guess. But it, that's why it's such a great story because just it just reflects... I, it, do you think is it like a Charlie Kaufman esque kind of thing where it's like they're trying to make this movie and they end up creating like this situation that is basically what they're trying to film? Uh yeah, I think to a degree. Like, I mean, it's I, the Lost Souls gets compared a lot to Lost in La Mancha a lot, but like that yeah. is a movie that is literally over the course of like a week before that movie is just shut down, like yeah. where they realize this is bad, we need to stop. Mm -hmm. And at no point it didn't seem really like anyone went we need to stop like this is this is spiraling out of control and instead they're like well let's just kind of see how far it goes yeah and <laughs> and you have to yeah that there's that sort of um that brinksmanship is, is really strange you also have to think that there's probably studio pressure we've dropped 40 million dollars or whatever into this yeah. well and, Whereas, I, and i'm sure they're like we've got brando we've got brando we've got a yeah got, right he's got what three movies left in him like yeah. we gotta get... we're new line god damn it <laughs> we make these movies <laughs> Whereas, who knows where Terry Gilliam's getting his money from? You know, I mean, it's just <laughs> nobody's pressuring him. Uh, fun fact uh, number two: uh, he has completed uh, principal photography on *The Man Who Killed Don Quixote*, so it will come out now. Yes, it will. Uh, Jonathan Price is in it. Adam Driver and Olga Kurlenko, I think. So, I hope it's good. Unless, <laughs> unless <laughs> the editing bay burns down, <laughs> this is going to really exist. <laughs> Uh, we should. We've been bagging on this thing. You want to talk about some of the things you really liked from the film? Um, there's not a ton. Like this, <laughs> I mean, it's not like it's a. It's not a bad movie. It's just that's, a frustrating. And movie. that's why I wanted to talk about it on the show because yeah. that's the real tragic part about it. Yeah, like I think there's a lot. There's so much potential in it. I like the source material. I like 
there's some decent casting there's some good performances the effects are very good it's just it is story 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 yeah is bad yeah. like it's and you can just see how many hand like everything is going all over the place like as much as there's probably three or four people credited with the script it's probably 20 like it's mm. it feels like rewrite hell and this is the kind of movie that seems complicated enough like you needed that down before you went out into production mm -hmm. and i don't think they did and i think they just were rewriting and rewriting and rewriting and like you literally have scenes missing that are integral to the plot of the story yeah and that's a problem like that's a big big problem yeah and highlights we're talking highlights uh, <laughs> i don't know i mean yeah like seriously like the, the highlights is the effects like i think the, all the people in the creature outfits is super cool yeah um i think it does uh, I think the scene where they turn on Brando is actually good. Like, I think that actually works pretty well. I don't know which version you saw, but there's a, an extended sort of version of that scene in the director's cut that's a lot more graphic. Yeah, and I think, I, I believe that's what's on the Blu-ray, is okay. the, just the director's cut. Yeah, where he gets his hand torn off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's like... What's, I what does Richard Stanley have against hands? Hands and fingers <laughs> really take it in his films. <laughs> but, yeah, I think that scene works really well as, like, an actual moment of horror. Yeah. Um, which is what this kind of story needs, especially to fuel, like, the rage of these animals. Yeah. Um, and that scene is another... Maybe maybe none of the highlights uh, can can go untinged by lowlights because that scene is another thing that could have been really great and just isn't, where the they break into his house, uh, Moreau's house, and he comes in and he tries to welcome them, like, oh, my children, oh, yep. you're going to come over. But well, <laughs> because... it feels like a pack hunt, like which is what yes. I really like about it. Like they're kind of slowly moving around yeah. him. Like that is something. And it's where... that thing where the animal starts to realize that oh, I could you know bite you and get away. Yeah, with it. you're just yeah. a man. Yeah, like, and I think and that's... you see you will. I know that he could have done this, but he doesn't bother to. Um, Brando is you. You see him trying to be like oh everything's fine, but also out of the corner of his eye being like I don't think that we're need... fine here. Yeah, Things I need are to not be prepared. Out. Yeah, and I think like that scene I think works is one of the few that I think pro like works really well in what it was aiming to do. Like, yeah, it was to build tension. Well, you can was... tell what they were trying to do. Yes, yeah. yes, and um, and yeah, to me like that is easily my favorite scene in the movie. It's too bad too, be and I notice this a lot of uh, Brando's scenes, and it might be because he is Brando and didn't want to work a lot, but almost all of his scenes are in a long take from the master mm -hmm. and you get that in that scene as well that's a scene where we could use a lot of inserts where he there is one where he looks side eye at he sees blood dripping um down from the hyena yep. and he realizes something and wrong. i think he looks at like his gun or something in yeah the drawer. uh but otherwise it's all just brando walks in oh so love my children <laughs> my children and it the scene just goes on and on and on uh, the one where he's got the ice bucket on his head is just one long take and i love long takes but it's just clear that he didn't want to do anything else. No, he wanted so to they get just in and shot get that. Out. Yeah. yeah. But where was his stand-in? They could have done uh, stuff with his stand-in if he didn't want to do it. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't there. <laughs> Thank God. Um, I really liked, um, and again, you see this in the documentary, but you see the concept art uh, done yeah. by Graham Humphreys, who's a guy that worked with um, Stanley on his films before. He's another one of those guys that does posters and uh, VHS tape covers. So he might have influenced you to watch uh, movies when you were young. And they're just fascinating, um, beautiful art yeah. uh, that shows a film that costs way more than this one actually yeah. ended up doing, but would have been great. And there's one where he's... It just struck me like where uh, he's got Moreau as this very um, 
almost holy um, deity sort of figure riding on a horse and he's got like a halo around his head and he's got like this hat and like this beard and he's in a suit and I was like Richard Stanton he said that he was basing it like on uh, Timothy Leary and um, John Lilly the guy who um, communicated with dolphins or whatever Okay, but in my mind it's like you didn't know that you were looking for Alejandro Hodorowsky yeah. to play this role. Because yeah. <laughs> it just looks like El Topo, <laughs> yeah. just totally. And he's a big fan of Hodorowsky, of course. Oh, of he's, course um, he is. <laughs> is it just called Hodorowsky's Dune, that documentary yep. about Dune? Yeah, he's one of the speakers in that. So that's like, oh, man, if only somebody would have given you uh, yeah, 80%, I mean, 60% of the money that you had to make that movie instead of what you ended up making. Yeah, I mean, I think Stanley wanted to make like this this cool little creature-based art film which is what he makes like that is the hardware for all of what it is is an art film yeah um it's a hardcore genre art film and mm. dust devil is this weird metaphysical kind of all you know art film as well and like i think that's the same thing he wanted to do here and instead the studio went no we want to make a hollywood blockbuster and that is dust just... devil is like the best it's like a 90 minute duran duran video they never made yeah <laughs> <laughs> which and i say that Totally positively. <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, it, like you have these two absolutely conflicting styles um, and that's disappointing. And like there's so much potential in what st- like all those images that they're showing and you're listening to Stanley talk about it. You're like, God, I want to see that movie. You keep saying Stan Lee and I think uh, of like no. Stanley. <laughs> Throw these beast men there. <laughs> um I, Val Kilmer just remain no matter how much of an asshole he was like is a total highlight for me. Like, yeah, I mean I'm I'm a big fan of over the top performances oh, yeah. and he gives an over the top performance. Yeah, I would have I honestly would have liked it cranked up maybe to like twelve from. 11. Oh, he could have like, gone bigger. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, like I think it would have worked more if he did go bigger. And it really makes me regret him sort of disappearing. And I hope that Top Gun Two starts a renaissance for him, so we can get some like uh, Val Kilmer. Back. I, yeah, I mean, if I am a fan of a fully engaged Val Kilmer. Like when yeah. he is into a role, he's really good. <laughs> he's yeah. really good, and not even when he's being big necessarily. Like um, Spartan uh, is great because mm-hmm. in Spartan he's just this straight down the line, like real serious operative or whatever, and yet you get that intensity and like you just wanna. He's one of those charismatic. Hollywood heroes that you yeah. just want to be on his side. Well, same Even when he's an asshole in this film and he's pointing guns at people's head, at the end when he starts doing his Brando impression <laughs> and he's like uh, overseeing the uh, the Beastman rave. <laughs> That's so good. You feel, that scene is good. <laughs> you feel kind of bad for it. Suddenly he becomes the victim yeah. as well. And then he gets blown away. He's like, I want to go to dog heaven. <laughs> Blow him away, poor yeah. guy. I forgot about that. That one is good. I like that. Yeah, I mean, he's one of those guys that he plays an asshole really well. He's He can do a very controlled performance. Like, I think Kiss Kiss Bang Bang is yeah. one where he's very controlled, but he's also, he's so good at Literally snark. being flamboyant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like he's he's someone that I don't know if gets enough credit for how good of an actor he is when he wants to be, but, yeah. he, but he can, he is, he is a star. Like, he has a commanding presence about him, mm-hmm. um, and it, like, the movie doesn't know how to use him very well. He uh, like, he's certainly in smaller bits and when he's there and actually giving a crap or at least giving a performance, like it's pretty fun. Yeah. Um, and that's to me, like if you're going to make this the style, the, the Hollywood blockbuster, you need some fun in there. And they're like, he's the only one that seems to think part of this is fun. Um, yeah. Everyone else is taking this deadly seriously. I can't confirm this, but I believe that it was not originally meant to come out in August. Um, Probably not. Yeah, because it's not, 
It is not a summer blockbuster <laughs> at all. And so that, I think it really suffered for that part of it. I'm trying to think of some of the other films that Kilmer's been in. I mean, there are a lot. And like, what sort of got his ship off off the guiding star? I don't know. He seemed to accept a lot of, like, why would why would he really accept this? He doesn't have any connection to the material. No. He doesn't... Oh, money. Like that's, Well, money, he, they for must, sure. I think yeah. I, that's the only thing is they must have thrown... But he was, you know, this is right after um, Batman Forever. Like, mm-hmm. he literally could have done anything. And, yeah, I mean, New Line must have really coughed it up to get it I, on, That's on only, the, Yeah, I mean, it, it very well could have been wanting to work with Brando, too. Yeah, that too. I mean, but it, and then realized... Which quickly turned to Yeah, Rancor. which realized, like, I hate your guts. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, and yeah, if I mean... Com- <laughs> if it comes down to you and me, Brando, it's going to be me. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, th- that really seems to be, like... Uh, probably the only decision is you're going to give you a lot of money you're going to go stay in some tropical paradise right and you don't really have to do anything and i mean and i'm sure part of it too is like he's going through this bad divorce i want to get the hell out of dodge right and you know go do whatever the hell i want to do right um it's no thunderheart i'll tell you that no (laughs) yeah Uh, well, it's clear that this did not turn out very good but why do you think that critics hated it so much uh, I mean, it's a mess. Like, it's a muddled mess. Yeah. Like, that's something that critics detest. Like, yeah. they like they can tolerate a movie they don't like if it's if it's at least cleanly told. But when it starts, you know, when you watch enough movies, these kinds of movies stand out as like, oh my god, this is you're wasting my time. Like, yeah, you you clearly didn't put in the effort to tell a coherent story or coherent themes. Yeah. and I think that's what really irks critics. It's a lot. an incomplete. Yeah, you know, more than enough. Yeah. And even with Frank Frankenheimer, who's made some good movies, um, there are like jarring scene transitions, mm-hmm. which is just an effect of the editing where it's like, all right, we've reached whatever the point of that scene was. And then, bam, we're into something else. And there's yep. Jeeps or something like that. And, yep. Yeah. OK, I can see that. I can see that. I also think it's one, another one of those things where critics have to kind of get, you know, blow off steam sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> so oh, yeah. I've you've been. been <laughs> and I think genre is nice... a very good place for them to do that, oh, for a lot, especially absolutely. in the 90s when. This is before the rise of like the internet film critic, which loves genre films in general. Yeah, like this is this is when genre is where, unless it is this high-minded, serious film, like it's garbage or right. you know T two or something. Yeah, like, Pauline Kael's not going for this. Yeah, one. something that is so big and so different and so new. Like if it's not that, then they are ready. They are ready and willing to tear it to pieces. Yeah. Well, um, some of the critics um, did tear it to pieces. Um, for pick of the patch, let's look at some of the uh, words from critics at the time. Uh, so this guy, I don't know this guy, a guy named Brandon Jadell from Critics Incorporated, which okay. is clearly a huge, uh, important Big. thing, uh, said, the most exciting characters are killed off too early, and what we're left with is a Satan's Sesame Street. It's <laughs> a good line. That is a good line. Uh, but he's absolutely right. Um, the Panth- leopard panther guy who you think is going to be some kind of like um, anti-hero sort yep. of character almost immediately dead yep um brando checks out about uh, maybe 55 uh, to an hour maybe minute, yeah uh, hour roughly in. half hour or yeah. halfway into the movie somewhere in there uh, ron perlman <laughs> poor is, ron perlman is there <laughs> and doesn't do anything and he, yeah so. he's essentially a bookend in, <laughs> in the yep. movie yep <laughs> Uh, he's there at the end, and it's funny because he's there at the end to be like, "Well, we'll be fine," and then also continue to muddy the theme by going, "Maybe we just need to be what we are." Like, really? 
what fortune cookie did you get that yeah, out of? Yeah, you're supposed to be like the moral center and, and you're just gone. And, and, and the little guy is there too, because thank God he's okay. <laughs> as soon as all the shit goes down, that guy's nowhere to be seen, you know? And I just expect like, <laughs> while they're just blowing things up, like he comes out with like a suitcase and he's like, we're cool, right? Just keep that shit away from me. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to go. Uh, another guy, Mike Clark for USA Today, said the movie keeps switching focus without ever getting its bearings. And when Brando exits earlier than expected, there's a little bit of mayhem to fall back on. Fair enough. I'd agree with that. Yeah. This is one of those movies I think that was definitely saved in editing. It's quote unquote saved, <laughs> but definitely probably made co- more coherent. And here is an actual positive review from Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, Walter Chaw from Phil Freak Central, oh, which Walter, is one of those. He has such good taste normally. Oh, okay. There you go. <laughs> I, I'm a big one fan of One of those of internet guys. Uh, he says, it's not to say that there's a lot wrong with the film, but rather to suggest that the chief criticisms of it being strange and a mess aren't among them. Being that those are true, but they're not necessarily things that you can levy at something. There's plenty of things that are that are strange messes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the works of Hodorowski that we mentioned before, <laughs> but aren't necessarily bad films. No, and, and I agree. I think I'd agree with that. I would agree with that. Like, I think uh, what carries those other films, though, is they have a compelling nature to them yes. that draw you into what they're telling. Like, you may not understand it and you may not get it or anything like that mm-hmm. or, or have any concept of what they're really aiming after, but like, there's they they compel you to keep wanting to watch this. This is a movie that is a slog. Like, it's like, when are you getting good <laughs> yeah yeah and i would blame a lot of that on the story too and adapting it you know if that story has anything to do with sort of modern life um guess what richard stanley is apparently working on a new adaptation yep. of the of the film i say film but he's open i think to tv as well he doesn't I, have... and i think it would work as like a mini series i'm amazed that it's never they've never tried to make this a tv show before yeah. um especially now that outlets like Net, uh, Netflix and Amazon are just pulling everything to make shows out of yeah like, I mean as a TV make a show, show as a TV show yeah you could kill off Moreau early on and just have an island of this and what they're doing like I would watch that yeah. you could do all sorts and it could be like you know you have the new person come in every week or whatever <laughs> on a boat and here's how they have to deal with this relationship like <laughs> like, like fantasy island yeah, or or like nightmare island, island or whatever yeah, yeah. like uh, I mean you can do it a lot of different ways but I, as yeah. a TV show, or at least as a miniseries, I think, even though it's a small book, like the themes, I think are pretty dense, and to deal with them well, you need you need that space to actually. Plus, on a TV show, let's say, and no offense to Mr. Wells, but let's say that the themes are weak in the book, like there isn't really enough to sustain more than, like you said, a hundred page book. On a TV show, you can put whatever you want in there. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't believe I'm going to compliment something that Damon Lindelof did, but. <laughs> The leftovers is like a bunch of people disappear. Now what? And over the course of three seasons or whatever, they got a chance to sort of fill a lot of things. Well, let's tackle this. Let's tackle this. Mm-hmm. Let's tackle this. And they took a premise that is kind of a one-line premise and can do more with it. So I think we're we're pitching it right now. We're yeah, pitching I a think you could Dr. do it. Moreau like TV I don't know show. if you want to do like a ten-season arc on something like this, but you do something sure. that's like. 80, 90 episodes or whatever it is, 50 episodes of two, three seasons of we're going to tell this story of sure. Moreau. I think you could do something really interesting. What about, it's Australian. What about George Miller producing a Richard Stanley directing <laughs> Mad Max Furry Road or oh, something God. like that? <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> stupid setup. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that it's got definitely got legs. The thing that I'm worried about, or not worried, I guess I'm interested to see is a guy like Stanley who made two 
two one two and one tenth <laughs> of of a uh, feature film who has not made a lot. He's done shorts and he's written a script or two in the meantime. Um, still very young, you know, only fifty. Like, how have his powers developed? Like, why is he now the guy to do this? Maybe he could write it, be a consultant and producer on it, but then hand it off to. A George Miller or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, I think... Does he have to direct? I don't think so. I don't know if he... I, I am surprised, like, they're, they're, all this talk of, like, giving him a show, I'm, I'm surprised somebody wants to hand him, like, I don't know how much money it would be, five, ten million, whatever it is. I'm surprised you'd want to hand it to someone who hasn't directed anything in 20-some years. Like, yeah. that's that's shocking to me. That's um, a big... Not that I don't think he doesn't have the skills, but it's, like, it's a, it's a muscle that you need to keep doing, and he yeah. hasn't really no um, and we've talked about hard, uh, hardware and uh, dust devil before they're two interesting very interesting films that i feel like have a lot of early director sort of touches to them mm-hmm. a guy who's tr- has seen other things in other films he's trying things out and he hasn't necessarily found his own personal voice yet yeah and i think i think they i mean ultimately i think they're both kind of flawed films but i don't yeah. i don't think that makes them bad films or interesting no, no. like i like them i like that's the, what the show's the, about yeah the flaws in them is what makes them really interesting to yeah. me um unfor- uh, unlike uh island of dr moreau where the flaws are what make it really bland to me like that's what frustrates me yeah um and I just think, like, as an artistic vision and, and person that can write scripts, I think Stanley's clearly very good at that. Um, his directing skills, like, there's just not enough out there to judge it, especially yeah. with such a huge gap. Like, I feel bad that his directing career was essentially killed by this movie. Absolutely. Because um, I think that's a, I think that's kind of, you know, I think film is less off for that. Like, I, we should have gotten five or six more Richard Stanley films by now, and I would be really interested oh, yeah. in seeing what his career would have become. This guy could have been the South African Guillermo del Toro. Mm-hmm. Another guy who's or very... Peter Jackson? Or... <clears throat> yeah. Um, del Toro was very inventive. I don't feel like he's the strongest director on Earth, um, but he's always bringing something that you're like, oh, yeah, okay, I see what you're doing there. And he could have totally become that if... He didn't cross New Line. Yeah, <laughs> new well, line, yeah. New Line will ruin you. <laughs> yeah, and I, I mean, and that's that's kind of like to me, like that, ultimately the the people that are like that suffer in this is not the characters in the movie. It's like the people that were actually in it and took part yeah. in it, yeah. which is what is weird about the whole production and the film is is a lot of careers were ruined by this, and then you have a lot of people that were able to get around this, like. Sure. You know, Ron Perlman has made a hell of a career for himself, and thankfully, this didn't kill it. Like, yeah. But I don't know where Rob Morrow's at, though. He seems to be doing okay. Yeah, is he? <laughs> he is... shows up in, like, uh, I don't know, legal procedures and stuff every once in a while. Okay. And stuff. <laughs> right. I think he's character acting, but, like, he's got sure. that Northern Exposure money that I'm sure probably yeah, still right. comes in. Yeah. And then again, like, coming right off a quiz show, why would he do this movie? Yeah. Why would anybody do this? Uh, would you recommend this film just to... Um, yeah, just... I mean, if you, I, uh, to me, this is a... I would recommend it to genre film fans. Okay, like, I think I it's an ask. interesting, f- at times, fun, like, it's... I mean, I own it. Like, I mean, <laughs> not like that's like some barometer of quality or, <laughs> or right. worth. Um, I certainly own worse movies than this, but <laughs> I think it's a movie that it's interesting to watch. Like, you hear so many stories about it that it has sort of a legend behind it. Yeah. In that in that respect, I think there's value in watching the movie. I don't think it's a particularly good one. I think it's unlikely you'll come out of it going like, "Wow, I loved this movie." Yeah. But I think it's interesting to watch. Yeah. Watching it again. 
just myself. Um, I don't think I've seen it since I saw it in the theater. Yeah, I don't think I'd seen it in 20-some years. And I was just thinking, like, having all those same criticisms you did, but also thinking, this isn't, like, 22%. Like, no. it's not horrible. No. Um, but I can see where they went wrong. And I still have the same problems I do with the story, but there is something about it that I keep getting drawn back to this, ooh, cool beast man. Like, yeah. we got to be able to do something with this. And it just hasn't happened yet. No. And that's and that's what's disappointing. Like I think this is source material that begs to be treated well, and I mean as most of Wells stuff is, and it's disappointing that it hasn't been yet. Yeah. Well, that's it. Uh, I think we've said pretty much everything <laughs> that we can say, or, or that you can't find in another documentary. So uh, we'll call it there. Uh, thanks for joining us, listeners. If you want to let us know how you felt about the movie, you can tell us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash craft services. Also, we're on Twitter at, uh, and pay attention, craft disservice. No S. We ran into a character limit there on Twitter. <laughs> Uh, we're also on iTunes, or I should say Apple Podcasts. You can search for Craft of Services there and subscribe, rate, and review us if you would. It helps us out a lot. We're also on Google Play, Stitcher, all that good stuff. Matt, where can people find you online? Uh, yeah, you can find me um, primarily through my website, which is wherethelongtailends.com. That's tail as in like a animal's tail. Not, <laughs> not an American in, tail, Yep, ironically. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, then, and then the other primary place would be on Twitter where I'm at WTLTE. Um, and those are the two easiest ways to get a hold of me. If you sure. if you go to our website, that's where all our podcasts are. You can subscribe to them there. Great. Um, which is primarily high and low brow, but we have a few others as well that I that you could you're more than welcome to try out. Film shows. Film shows. Uh, yeah. the The super fun one is uh, Cabin in the Woods Film Festival podcast, in which I <laughs> force my wife to watch horror film, films that I love, uh, and she yells at me. That sounds great. It is actually pretty fun. <laughs> Um, I don't know if it is for her, but it's real fun for me. (laughs) Uh, and then, uh, keep watching the skies, which is some other friends that, uh, that, uh, post a podcast that's primarily on like science fiction B films. Okay. Uh, it started out mainly in the fifties, but it's kind of progressed to kind of all over the place. Okay. Well, that sounds great. Thanks for joining me again on the show and the credits are rolling. This is Aaron for Matt saying, keep it real.